0: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Edith Piaf was a singer and cultural icon, as well as one of France's biggest international stars. Today, I'm going to be talking with Carolyn Berg about her Piaf biography entitled No Regrets. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today to discuss No Regrets. I'd like to kick things off by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me in the first place. Um, I'm I'm a bit of a hybrid as a biographer. I was born in Sydney, Australia, where I lived as a child, came to the U.S., um, and did my schooling here, and went to Paris as soon as I could at age 19, and have been going back there ever since. So that's... uh, I first discovered my beloved Edith Piaf when I was living in a maid's room um, up on the sixth or seventh floor uh, of the building in Paris where I found lodging at the time. And I listened to her on the radio very frequently and indeed learned French by singing along with
0: her. So what drew you to her story?
1: First of all, her voice, it was so powerful, it just knocked my socks off. I've never heard anything like it before. You have to think that this was in the late 50s, and I had come from the U.S., where we had quite interesting and lively music, but nothing in any way sounded like what Piaf was singing. It was the passion in her voice, the go-for-broke quality that just amazed me and then when my French teacher at the Sorbonne where I was studying happened to say that if you were looking for a good example of excellent French pronunciation and diction you would do well to listen to Edith Piaf and I thought, good heavens, alright, I'm doing the right thing so I had that sense of identification uh, with the culture through her and through my early times in Paris Then when I was looking for another subject recently after I'd finished my uh, previous book, I thought, well, I really want to go back to Paris, and this is going to provide me the opportunity, and besides, you know, she's so much a part of my imagination, I want to do Edith Piaf, but I had to nerve myself up to it because she was so famous, and I hadn't written about anyone of that stature before.
0: What was the writing process like? Were you in Paris for that?
1: A part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I spent as much time as I could in Paris, which amounted to a few months each year. And mostly when I was in Paris, I was interviewing people who had known her or were part of her extended musical family, or I was going to the French National Library to read old newspapers, things like that. So I did more research and kind of digging around, including at flea markets to find old magazines with features about it when I was in Paris. And then when I came back to California where I live, my suitcase is full of all this treasure. I would sift through and sit down and decide what I was going to do next. So it was a kind of a slightly interrupted writing process, but it seemed to flow very well. Mm-hmm.
0: How long did it take you to write the book?
1: This was the fastest book I've done of my three so far. Three years flat. I think I was more or less um, inhabited, if we can say that. I'm translating from the French. By the pace at which Piaf herself lived. As you know, she had a very Mm -hmm. short life. And she lived at an incredible breakneck pace. She really wore herself out in the end. But I was writing in some way, I think, in retrospect, uh, in her rhythm, because it was the kind of life it was, I had to write it to feel it that way, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. Um, What sources did you find most helpful as you were writing?
1: Uh, Several different kinds. To begin with, the wonderful Piaf. Collectors. I had never encountered fans before as a source of information and documents, but I met several of Piaf's um, fans and collectors, collectors of anything to do with her and her life, while I was in France. In particular, two men in Marseille who have the largest collection in the world of what we might call Piafiana. And I went to visit them several times. We we hit it off. We we realized that we were so much on, on a, the same wavelength that we could really work together well, although they were doing their book and preparing exhibitions. It was fine. My work was complimentary. So that was one kind of new source. They had, for example, um, unpublished um interviews that they had taped with her when she was still alive, and they had obscure uh, recordings and posters and everything down to her um, her automobile, which I got to ride in, <laughs> the most Extraordinary collection. This was very inspiring to be with such people. Who we're kind of living and breathing in the atmosphere of Edith Piaf. Then, on 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 the opposite extreme of research, the Bibliothèque Nationale of the French National Library has many wonderful collections, but two in particular were very important to me. The first was a big, big cache of Piaf's correspondence with the man she called her spiritual mentor, whose name was Jacques Bourgeat, She wrote to him over some 30 years because he really was her teacher and guide during much of that time. These were the most personal, intimate letters that gave so much new information and, and a fresh way of seeing her from within, in a sense. They hadn't been available before, so I was the first person to be able to Use them and quote from them in English. And that was a wonderful, wonderful um, discovery for me.
0: Early on in No Regrets, I think it's the first paragraph of the preface. You use the word feral to describe Piaf, and it's it caught my attention at the time before I even read the book, and it kind of stuck with me throughout because it's such an extraordinarily vivid word. Why do you think this is applicable to her?
1: No, because she was such a wild child. She was a child of the streets who was schooled chiefly in survival until she met the Jacques Bourgeois at the age of 20. She had minimal schooling of a formal kind, and mostly she learned um, on the fly, on the go. as She traveled with her father, who was a traveling acrobat and contortionist, the two of them traveled around France to provincial towns, and just uh, did enough you know, did performances in the streets to earn enough to survive from day to day. Which is a pretty wild or feral existence for a, a little girl starting at age seven.
0: So that's part
1: of what I meant.
0: Hmm. There's more, but that's the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about her life in the Paris slums and how she grew up?
1: Yes, certainly. Her parents. Were uh, street performers, as I said. Her father, a, you know, absolutely fascinating character, about five feet tall, uh, and a, a contortionist and acrobat who must have put on a very good act. You know, he, he could perform all kinds of amazing tricks, and, and but did them for whatever passersby felt like contributing. Her mother was. Um, a would-be singer, and sometimes street singer, as Edith was too, but the mother abandoned the family when Edith was an infant and went off on her own. She wasn't cut out to be a mother, I guess. So Edith's early childhood was extremely um, dramatic, we would say, perhaps. She was brought up partially by her maternal grandmother, who was, I think, drunk much of the time. Uh, and then when her father came back from serving in World War I and saw the conditions in which his little girl was living, he took her off to his mother, her paternal grandmother, who lived in a small town in Normandy, uh, all of which sounds great. But it just so happens that the grandmother ran the town's brothel. So Edith then... Uh, lived in the private family quarters of the town's brothel until her father came and took her away after the local um, priest said to him and maybe to the grandmother, look, this can't go on, you can't bring up this little child in a brothel. It was a pretty remarkable start to life, but didn't seem to bother her. She was a person who could just take things in stride and... um respond to whatever came her way pretty much until she became um, quite ill in later life. So it, it's, a, it's a
0: picturesque upbringing, to say the least. Yes. <laughs> and she also had health problems from a young age because she was nearly blind while she was at the That's brothel, right? right? <laughs>
1: yes. The reason that she... Uh, could stay at the brothel in a sense was that she couldn't, (laughs) they could tell themselves, the adults, that she couldn't see what was going on because she had a very bad case of keratitis, which is now curable with antibiotics, but they didn't have them then. So a lot of the time, her eyes were almost closed and she had to be treated with um, cold water compresses So people could think, well, she doesn't really know what's happening. (laughs) But when when she was finally cured, and she thought that her cure came um, thanks to St. Teresa, because the grandmother and the ladies of the house uh, all went to St. Teresa's shrine uh, nearby in Lisieux, and prayed that little Enid might recover her sight. And the the wonderful story is that indeed, you know, in the short time she did. After that happened, it was then that the curé apparently said, look, you can't bring up this child in these circumstances. So off she went with her father in his circus caravan, which was quite uh, a shift, but um, no less dramatic, shall we say. (laughs)
0: How did she begin singing? Oh, well,
1: her father... Uh, noticed that she had a good voice and had her sing at the end of his performances, maybe one or two songs, when she went around collecting uh, coins from the spot. And I suppose he, he realized quite quickly that she had uh, a major talent. So he incorporated her into the act and had her sing. But I, I learned from the people in that little town in Normandy where her grandmother lived that she was already singing even before there, even before her father came and uh, took her off with him on his travels. So it must have been noticed that this child had an incredible voice very early
0: on. What types of sh- songs did she sing?
1: Oh, well, at first she's saying, um, well, there's some dispute about this because she said several different things about what she sang. You have to think that this was at a time um, just after World War One, and there was a lot of, you know, patriotic sentiment. Uh, she said that she sang the Marseillaise, the French national anthem. But at another time, she also said that she sang the, the international, the communist international so it would be interesting to know know, what she actually sang first or if she sang both, but that doesn't particularly matter. She also sang very sentimental, romantic, popular tunes, which were not suitable to her age at all. But no doubt this drew the audience because the contrast between this sweet-looking little girl and the kind of naughty lyrics that she was singing or suggestive lyrics would have been quite striking. So she learned the popular repertoire of the day, and when she went off on her own at age 15, when she decided she'd had enough of her father and his new wife and and, um, and her new siblings, she went off to sing in the streets by herself in Paris. So she sang the popular repertoire of the singers of the day, um, including lots of songs that were called Chanson réaliste, or realistic songs about working-class people's lives. Mm-hmm. Romances, too, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. And shortly after she went off on her own, she had her first major love affair with Louis Dupont, right?
1: Uh, yes, and she had a baby mm-hmm. who uh, they, they were not married, but that didn't particularly matter in, in their milieu. Lots of people didn't marry. So for a time... They would, as we say, shack up together <laughs> and tried to make a go of it as a little family. But that didn't last too long. Right.
0: And then he wound up with their child for a while and she went to Pigalle. Uh, can yeah. you talk a bit about her time performing in Pigalle and what Pigalle was like in that time?
1: Oh, yes. I love doing this research <laughs> and writing this part of the book because Pigalle was, oh, without a doubt, the, the most... Um, edgy, saucy, dangerous and exciting part of Paris at the time. We're talking in the um, late 20s, early 1930s. And it was, among other things, the home to both the the French mafia and uh, naturally some of their related trades like um, prostitution and rackets and other things. So Edith and her girlfriend who accompanied her at the time ended up living in a little hotel, cheap little hotel rooms, right in the heart of all that. And Edith had to work out a way to not get um, taken up by some of these gangster types that they were hanging out with in the expected way, that is, as a streetwalker, but rather to get them to honor her abilities as a street singer. It was quite quite an amazing time, but she really learned to train, because she had to um, figure out how to survive in these very rough circumstances, how to have enough protection and enough independence, very, very tricky balance.
0: (laughs) How did she come by her stage name?
1: Ah, well, that's a wonderful story. Uh, This this is how it goes. When she was not quite 20, she and her friend uh, decided that they would venture out from Pigalle and sing in some of the more prosperous prosperous areas of Paris. You have to think, of course, that Paris was um, very much um, kind of a socially divided city with slummy areas, um, dangerous areas, middle-class areas, and and, uh, upper-class areas. So they decided very sensibly to go was, and this particular day in the autumn of, I think it was 1935, they went off to sing near the Champs Elysees. Edith was singing on a street corner near the Arc de Triomphe. When a well-dressed gentleman came over and listened for a while, and then when she stopped, said to her, "You must stop singing like this. You're, you know, you'll ruin your voice. You're, you're belting out the music." to which she replied, well, I have to, I have to earn a living. This man turned out to be Louis Le Play, who owned a very fashionable little nightclub cabaret nearby. And he, recognizing her talent, said, well, look, come and audition for me. That was how she got her start. And he paid her so much more than you know for a night than she could earn in a week that she was absolutely amazed. And from then on, she didn't have to perform in the streets because she... Uh, developed a colic. Now, her name, you asked me about. She was born as Edith Gassion, which didn't sound too good. (laughs) And Le Play, this this nightclub owner, said, well, look, I've got to find you a stage name. I would like to call you... uh, I would like to give you the name that you deserve, which is, you know, Street Sparrow. But this one is taken. The word for Sparrow, Moineau, in French, was already taken. Somebody else was using it. So he said... I'll call you Edith Piaf, Piaf being slang for sparrow. So that was how she got the name, and it stuck with her from then on Edith the sparrow.
0: <laughs> it was so appropriate that it was the slang word.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, it's perfect. No, it is, because it's a, it's a poor little bird that pecks out its living with difficulty in, in, in the street. So mm-hmm. it, it, it was just right.
0: <laughs> what role did Raymond Asso play in her rise to fame?
1: Ah, he's another really interesting character. I like him a lot. He lived in Pigalle. He wrote songs. Uh, he, he composed uh, the lyrics for a number of popular songs in the mid-30s when she was just beginning to um, establish herself. And he had admired her from afar, but she never particularly talked to him until after the first tragedy in her life, which was the murder of Louis Le Play, her impresario, the man who had um, taken her off the street, so to speak, and into his nightclub. Well, she found herself uh, with the ruins of a career uh, not long after she had really made her stop, because the police and the popular press wanted to associate her with this murder, although she had nothing to do with it. And one day when she came back from touring the south of France to realize that she was never going to go anywhere with all of these suspicions hanging around her unless she found someone else to help her. She phoned Raymond Asseau and said, Can you come and help me? This was about thirty-seven, thirty-eight. From that point on until the Second War, they were uh, a couple. He wrote for her, he composed songs on the basis of the stories that she told him about her life, they were really collaborators in a way. And at the same time, he said he tamed her. We're coming back to the feral issue. He, when he found her, he thought she was so, so uh, wild that he wanted to civilize her, to teach her better manners, how to behave in society, if and when she might find herself with middle-class or upper-middle-class people, uh, to teach her better diction, and to, in general, smooth some of the rough edges, which he did. And he wrote some wonderful songs for her.
0: Yeah. This is a bit of a change of direction, but um, one of the things that really surprised me throughout No Regrets was the, her, her mystical bent, her spiritualism. Um, and she preferred private devotion to institutionalized ritual, but she was seen like darting in and out of churches often and prayed regularly. Can you discuss the role of spirituality in her life?
1: yes it's very, very
0: interesting. This
1: is new too uh, it's been known that she always wore um a medal for uh, saint Teresa who had performed the miracle she so she thought of of curing her blindness but um in general, people haven't taken too seriously this spiritual dimension in her life. She was very um much drawn to worship, but not in a conventional way. In other words, she didn't go to church on Sundays that much, but she would, as you said, pop into a church and sit down and pray. I think it's rather like um, meditation for many of us now. In in a sanctuary, it was a place where she could, I suppose, communicate with with the deity. Um, Sometimes people have described her religious bent as rather simple, but I, I wouldn't want to use that kind of word. She, she did, um, as many people do, pray for the things that she wanted for, you know, to realize her hopes and so on. But uh, in late, later life, she actually became a student of some rather unusual spiritual traditions and ended up um, doing the initiation to become a member of the Rosicrucian order, uh, which must have brought her great comfort because she continued to read in Rosicrucian doctrines um, seriously to the end of her life. And I was able to talk with some of the people who um, did that practice with her. So th- that was very interesting to see that this person who was known, better known for the vast quantity of uh, love affairs that she had was also someone for whom love in this other sense had great meaning. In fact, I think it was sort of all connected for her.
0: Mm -hmm. We will come back to the love affairs. But first, I wanted to touch upon one of my favorite sections was the, the passages on World War II and on her activities when she stayed in France and kept singing and how she visited the French prisoners of war in Germany. Can you discuss that time period a bit about what her efforts were during the war?
1: Oh, yes. I was very, very glad to be able to clarify some of that because there have been um, doubts about exactly what she did. She did a number of things that required great bravery. Yes, yes as you said, she did stay in France, uh, first in the south of France, in the un- unoccupied zone several times, and then in Paris itself, even when... Um, the Germans were, you know, fully in charge of everything because she felt in part that um, it was her job to go on singing and that she would bring whatever comfort she could to um, her fans. By then she was quite well known in France and had great numbers of them. But specifically what she did that I admire so is that she defied the Nazis, including the German censors who who were... um attending her performances to see what she was singing, by insisting on singing the songs written by her Jewish friend. She had a number of Jewish composers, and she sang their songs even when they became verboten. As you know, the, you know, the Germans wouldn't allow anything Jewish to be um, performed or publicized. At one point, she had to step down from an engagement and not sing at all, because she refused to give up... Uh, Some of this repertoire. She also paid quite a bit of money to shelter and protect her Jewish friends. Again, some of these composers in the south of France, where they took refuge and arranged, made complicated arrangements so that they would be safe. But most remarkable was what she did when the German authorities insisted that she, like lots of other entertainers, would have to go to Germany to entertain the French prisoners of war there. Naturally, that made the Germans look good. It was a good move for German propaganda. Well, she went twice, but with the help of her secretary, who was a member of a resistance unit, made use of these trips to have photographs of herself taken with the prisoners of war. This was looking... You know, The Germans didn't oppose it because it looked like good propaganda. Again. They smuggled these photographs back and in a secret um, dark room of the resistance, some of the, um, their associates printed up these images, blew up the head uh, headshots, and made them into fake identity papers so that when Edith and the secretary went back the second time to Germany, they were able to distribute these. Um, fake ID cards, along with other helpful items, to some of the prisoners who were then uh, able to escape. And that just took such bravery that uh, it it kind of amazes me that they got away with it. But she was staunchly anti-German and wanted very much to help in whatever way she could.
0: And she did come under some fire after the war where people didn't understand what she was doing on those trips, right? And, and she was. Right. Yeah.
1: In the period right after the war, as you can imagine, I think this is the case after many such um, devastating, intern assigned um, periods, you know, in which a society is completely torn apart. There were these purge committees at the liberation. Um, purge committees were set up in all the different professions uh, and circumstances to look into what people actually did, who had collaborated, who had worked with the Germans, and so on. And in many cases, there were severe punishments. Well, there was a purge committee for entertainers. And as it was known that she had gone to Germany to sing, naturally she was called in. But her secretary, who had organized these um, clandestine activities that helped free the prisoners, went with her and explained everything that happened. So at the end of the hearing, the members of the purge committee exonerated Edith Piaf and even issued their congratulations to her for having done what she did.
0: I want to bring us back to the the Feral issue and the love affairs. And I think her life is, <laughs> her life is often characterized as wayward, particularly as regards her love affairs, but one thing that struck me in the book was it wasn't Often these were not just casual liaisons. They were usually they were mutually beneficial relationships. They had meaning. They were with collaborators and friends. Can you talk a bit about just about her relationships in general, in particular um, with Marcel Sardan um, and their other collaborators that she worked with?
1: Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that was uh, I cared very, uh, very, very much to present these love affairs in exactly that way. They often were forms of collaboration based on trust and affinity and um, not, you know, mutually beneficial to some extent. They weren't just a bunch of random hookups by any means. So, coming back to the people you'd like me, the people you mentioned, the great love of her life, she always said, was the boxer Marcel Fernand. And Uh, The two of them met in the U.S., which is so interesting. Just after the war, they were both in New York in 1947, 48, and perhaps the most famous French people in the U.S. at the time. He had won several incredibly important fights and was a champion, I think, um, middleweight champion, and greatly beloved by his American audiences, even though he was... um, a foreigner they admired his spirit and they admired the way he walked. well she too had begun um to have a, a, a very big american following because um after the war i think the u.s was ready for somebody as different as she was and when the two of them fell in love it was like the biggest um uh Romance, as far as the French were concerned, once they found out their American fans were kind of crazy about them, too, when, when they saw the two together. So this was unfortunately marred by the fact that Chandon was married and had a wife and children back at home. But Piaf was um, pretty understanding about that and tried to behave in such a way that would not undermine his situation and, indeed, would protect him from... Um, any notoriety until the uh, word got out. But the, the, to, make the, the, to bring the story to its close, she was in New York a couple of years later and knew that he was coming for another fight, but couldn't bear to wait as long as it would take for him to get there, because he was planning to come by ship. So she called and said, oh, couldn't you take a plane? And he too must have been eager to get there as fast as he could, so he did, But the terrible tragedy was, as you know, that the plane crashed in the Azores and everyone on board died. Um, She never saw him again. And after that, she was never really the same according to her closest friends. She began to develop the crippling um, rheumatoid condition that would plague her the rest of uh, her life and also felt that um, she had lost her greatest love. I think they gave each other great confidence and ease and um, it it truly was a a deep love affair. As for the others, um, in time, it wasn't that she ever got over the loss of Serdon, but being um, the major star that she was and the kind of person she was because she was sort of half in love with being in love, she found other collaborators, generally young men, and in the 1950s, quite a few of them were young singers on their way up who became her protégés or composers or performed with her. They all benefited tremendously from um, partnerships with Edith, which often didn't last too long, but were pretty rich uh, while they lasted.
0: And she also got a lot of excellent songs from them and a lot of I'm thinking of um, La Compagnon, uh, and her role as mentor to them, but also really increasing their visibility as well.
1: That's right. It's very Mm -hmm. interesting to look at that from the inside, from within the music business, because as you just said, these groups like the the Compagnon de la Chanson, the nine uh, young Frenchmen who came over to the U.S. and were so popular after the war, sang with her. uh, She gave them... uh, their start. She was tremendously generous with them, wrote them songs, sponsored them, toured with them. And they recognized uh, how much they benefited from their association with her. And and, and she said the same. I spoke to one or two of the members of that group who were still alive.
0: By the 1950s, she was in and out of the hospital a lot. What was wrong?
1: In addition to her arthritic condition, which uh, twisted her fingers and and, um, gave her tremendous pain in her limbs. She also suffered in the aftermath of two major car crashes in which she was involved when um, collaborators were driving. And her uh, pain was such that the doctors whom she saw prescribed various very heavy painkillers, which she tended to taken double and triple doses when she felt she needed them. No one was supervising these various medicines, and so she um, undoubtedly took far too much. At the same time, from time to time, she drank quite a bit too, as everybody did in those days, but no doubt the combination was pernicious. I, I should mention that because she was an entertainer, she lived... Uh, on entertainer's time, that is. Um, she performed late at night, uh, was full of adrenaline, uh, couldn't get to sleep after performances. This is typical of, of of singers, I've learned. And so would probably be up most of the night and have to uh, take sleeping pills to eventually get to sleep in the wee hours of the morning. This combination of drugs... Very damaging to her liver and uh, eventually uh, by the late 50s she was suffering from liver damage and went into what is called technically hepatic coma which means that the liver is pretty much shut down. That's what took her to the hospital again and again Mm -hmm. and eventually caused her death.
0: I think it's because of these, these health issues and drug issues that she's often compared to Judy Garland and Billie, Billie Holiday. Do you think those comparisons have any merit outside of those reasons? Well, I think
1: outside of those reasons, yes, because of the passion um, and um, go for broke quality of in the voices of all three women. Uh, there are huge differences, too, but I would say that, that another one we could add to that kind of pantheon of singers might be someone like Janis Joplin. Um, there are certain singers, particularly women singers, who just don't hold anything back, who give you their all, and in that sense, I would say the comparison to Judy Garland and Billie Holiday is, is worth thinking about.
0: You mentioned a song where she absolutely held nothing back. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about Non Je Ne Regret Rien?
1: Ah, yes. One of my favorite songs, As you can guess from the title. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about my own attachment to that song. When I was a student again in Paris in 1961, that song was on the radio all the time. It was during the um, very terrifying years of the Algerian War. And there was in a sense, a strong connection between uh, the reception of that song and the atmosphere uh, of the time, which was very, very tense. Well, I was living in a kind of um, dormitory where uh, we had the great virtue of having good plumbing, American-style showers, things like that. And I would sing in the shower, non, je ne regrette rien, there was nowhere else where I could (laughs) quite bellow it out. but it became my own personal anthem at the time. I, it was a very difficult time for me, and Edith Piaf in that song kind of saw me through. So um I almost felt as if I, I have it in my bones somehow, but so do a lot of other people. It turns out millions of people took comfort or found courage in that song, and it's a um, remarkable declaration of resilience and defiance and the idea that we can start over again, even after great sorrow or difficulty that we can just kind of pick up and start over again without regret. Well, choosing the title, um, just came to me like that because I thought it also expressed something about Piaf herself, even though she went through so much and, um, suffered so many losses and so much pain, I think she has the kind of life she wanted. I think that she, too, did not regret. She said, in fact, towards the end of her life, that she had. She felt that everything she had gone through gave her the ability to express these things to her audience, to let them know that she shared with them uh, life's joys. Along with its sorrows. And I think people felt that in her voice. I've just done a wonderful, um, uh, uh program with the BBC about that very song. Uh, the, the BBC's program is called Soul Music. They pick a piece of music which may be classical or popular or a- anything which has meant a lot to many, many people. And they go through its history, its composition, its performances, and so on. I was particularly pleased that they chose Non-Je ne regrette (laughs) rien as a way to speak about uh, just as soul music.
0: Right. It's an extraordinary song. Um, What do you see as Piaf's legacy?
1: Ah, well, first of all, uh that her way of performing the full range of the tradition of the French song, which, uh going back to the ones I mentioned earlier, the realistic song of working class lives, we wouldn't have that amazing body of work in uh the repertoire of one performer had she not become so popular and so successful right up through... World War II, but then, uh, in addition to that remarkable group of songs, that which suggests so much about the time in which they were written and the audiences for whom they were performed, there's also her way of taking in what we might now call world music. After she came to the U.S. and toured South America, adapted, uh, some very beautiful melodies from um, Latin American sources and even made use of rock and roll. Her stunning ability to pick up anything that was interesting, intelligent, new, and fresh musically and to make something um, of it in her own way. I think that's a very considerable musical intelligence. That's not exactly a phrase that people often use about her, but I think she had that. Um, And she was also a bit of a poet. But to answer your question more succinctly, she leaves as her legacy this remarkable spirit coming from next to nothing, coming from her feral beginning from the extreme deprivation of her childhood. She never lost touch with her roots. She brought with her everything that she learned under those circumstances, her generosity, her feeling for ordinary people's lives. And she found a way to express all that, our common humanity, um, the need for love, uh, expressed to everyone that we might run into um, regardless of their social class. She she expressed all of that in her music and that's part of what people feel even today and why she has so many millions of fans all over the world.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about No Regrets, The Life of Edith Piaf. Uh, any idea what you're going to be writing about next?
1: Uh, yes. <laughs> I am uh, doing something very different. It's a, gr- a group portrait of four artists whose lives were very much intertwined. Uh, I think this may grow, have grown out of the idea of artistic collaboration that you mm. mentioned earlier, how important uh, artists are for each other when they're really in tune and in touch, even if these forms of collaboration are also brought uh, on occasion. I won't say more than that, but they're American, which is a big change for me. So I'm staying home, so to speak, and writing about uh, people who did not leave the U.S. and run off to Paris like my <laughs> other subjects, but stayed here and tried to work out what uh, they were going to do with, with their very American native sources.
0: How fascinating. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: I've been talking today with Carolyn Burke about her latest biography entitled No Regrets, The Life of Edith Piaf, which is now in hardback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.